Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. We are coming back briefly from our season break this week for a special episode on Kenya's presidential elections. My colleague Marithi Mutiga, our Africa director, is joining us to speak on the latest developments. Candidate William Ruto was announced president-elect on Monday the 15th. That result has been disputed by the challenger and longtime opposition leader Raila Odinga, who has vowed to take the matter to the Supreme Court. We'll speak about how we got here, what happens next, what we could expect from a Ruto presidency, as well as the future of democracy in Kenya. Marithi, welcome to the show. Good to be here, Alan. Thanks. So we are recording this on Wednesday morning. The election results were announced finally on Monday. Raila Odinga challenged the results uh, yesterday, but I'm just wondering if you can give our listeners just a brief sort of rundown about where things stand. I think, Alan, the first thing to reflect on is that this was an actual election. As you know, in much of the region, we generally tend to have coronations of one type or the other. But this was an incredibly competitive race. The ultimate uh, result showed that, you know, Deputy President William Ruto and his main challenger, Raila Odinga, were separated by only 200,000 votes from around 14 million people that voted. And so it was incredibly competitive. The ultimate gap between them was roughly 1.7%. So it was really uh, a refreshing contest, a very intense contest, and one that has lessons for the region, I would say. I think the second thing, um, given Kenya's history, is that this was probably one of the first elections in a long time where ethnicity was not at the center. And and so you had uh, the candidates being forced to canvas on issues of economic development plans, of inequality and others. They generally ran very dignified campaigns And third, it was remarkably peaceful. Again, given Kenya's history, it was a campaign where there were very few incidents of violence. There were exceptions in some subnational contexts, particularly in northern Kenya. But in general, it was quite peaceful. We now have a result, but it's being challenged in court by the opposition leader, Raila Odinga. Okay, a lot for us to to get to here. This was obviously a very high stakes, sort of unusual and intriguing uh, Kenyan election. And we'll get to all that. But but first of all, about this challenge from Raila Odinga, including the fact that a majority of the commissioners from the Electoral Commission have rejected the result, but these commissioners were essentially appointees of of President Uhuru Kenyatta, who was backing Raila Odinga in the race. Can you, can you just unpack sort of where it stands in terms of the, the challenge to the election and, and what happened with the election commission? So I think since Kenya adopted a new constitution in 2010, the judiciary has served as an incredibly important safeguard to uh, the electoral process in Kenya. We'll recall that in 2007, when the country erupted in horrific violence following an election that many thought was stolen, nobody could turn to the court simply because there was very little trust in the judiciary. Today, the judiciary is one of the most trusted institutions in the country. And so Odinga is to be commended for going to court rather than to the streets to challenge this result. But it partly reflects the high levels of trust that people have in the judiciary to be a fair arbiter uh, of electoral disputes. I would place less premium on the actions of the commissioners. I think 
when when you look back at Kenyan electoral history, the composition of the electoral commission has always been quite politically charged. In 1997, the opposition threatened to boycott the election because they didn't have trust um, in the electoral commission. They they wanted to have a capacity to uh, nominate members of that commission. And in the run up to the 2007 election again, it was very contentious that the government in power at that time almost unilaterally appointed commissioners. Uh, that, that then steered the disastrous election. So commissioners do tend, unfortunately, uh, to be regarded as people that might be leaning towards side, one side or the other. The, the process of appointing these ones was not uh, particularly transparent, but you don't want to cast aspersions on their motivations because this will be tested in court. I, I would definitely say it's something to note, uh, but it's, it's one that I think the court will ultimately determine. Mm. Can, can we go a bit deeper into that? Obviously, Kenya just had an incredibly transparent election in as much as the election results were all online in a portal anyone can download and look at them. I mean, what do you make of the, of the substance of the challenge, of course? A lot of the feedback and, and instant reaction seems to be that they don't have much of a challenge. So some listeners will know that in 2017, we had a presidential election won at that time by President Uhuru Kenyatta, but very strongly challenged by the opposition leader Raila Odinga. And remarkably, and for the first time on the continent, the Supreme Court annulled that election, citing irregularities and illegalities. I think that was a really important moment because the, the bench therefore set a very high standard for future elections. They said they have to be simple, they have to be transparent, verifiable, and secure. I would say that the Electoral Commission deserves quite a bit of credit this time because they surprised most Kenyans by running what was seemingly a remarkably transparent election. Within hours of polls closing, all polling station tallies were uploaded to an online portal. Thankfully, that online portal held up despite millions of people logging on. And so the effect of it was that anybody with a calculator could check what the ultimate tally was, who was going to win. They needed a lot of time to verify and, and check those results. But it was a transparent election by most degrees. I would say not even by African standards, by most global standards. I was just joking to someone that if every state in the U.S., managed to run such a, a process where all polling station tallies were online, then maybe Trump won't be able to get away with claims that the election was stolen. So I think it was, it was really um, a, a credit to the Electoral Commission that they learned from their mistakes in 2017. They uploaded all polling station tallies. By law, polling station tallies are final and cannot be altered. And therefore, it was one that transparency, I think, helped to lead to a peaceful election because many people, even if they have sympathy with Odinga's claims, these claims will be tested in court, uh, but many people therefore had trust in the process. Quickly, before we, we move on to, to more sort of analysis of the elections, um, wh what's your reflection about how Kenya managed to get to this point with an electoral commission? Obviously, every electoral cycle for people who've been watching Kenyan politics for a while, the electoral commission was sort of at the center of all this drama and all this suspicion, including the attempt to do sort of online results, which haven't always worked in the past. Do you have any reflections on sort of any lessons learned on how Kenya, you know, managed to get to this point in terms of building um, an independent electoral commission? That's a really important question, Alan. And I would say that we have to remember that scholars of civil war often say that the greatest predictor of internal, internal conflict 
is a past conflict. And that's because very few countries learn lessons from uh, getting to the edge of, of serious uh, civil war. Uh, so the 2007 violence, where you had a disputed election, you had communal violence on a very serious scale, you had very brutal police responses and the death of hundreds of people. Kenya actually learned lessons from that and I think instituted a process of reform that very many post-conflict countries could learn from. Um, most particularly, the 2010 constitution adopted by referendum with a majority of Kenyans supporting it was really a seismic shift. It introduced two key, two key changes. One is that it changed the system of government governance from something I would call a winner-take-all system to a winner-takes-more. And so you had a system of devolution which meant that the president no longer controlled most national resources. You have, by law, at least 15% in practice, a third of national revenue going down to the counties. Uh, we call them counties in Kenya. That's uh, 47 subnational units. And, and therefore, at the local level, people know that the, uh, the presidency is not a life and death matter. Whatever happens, whoever wins and takes office, they will still get uh, resources at the local level and elected representatives will run uh, things like local schools and local hospitals and, and local um, development initiatives. So that was a really important reform. But the second critical reform was the introduction of a really independent judiciary, a judiciary that thankfully was headed particularly by the first two chief justices who turned out to be fiercely independent and therefore engendered a culture of independence and autonomy from the executive. And, and so I think the region could learn from the reforms that Kenya instituted. They were very far-reaching. I think it was partly because Kenyans were so shocked that after a very successful um, uh, election where Kenya was one of the first uh, countries in, in Africa to vote out a ruling party in 2002, that the very next election was a total disaster. And so from the embers of that um, catastrophe, I think Kenya instituted very substantial reforms. And we have to say that this is building up into a success story. Every election has been better since 2007. 2013 was relatively peaceful. 2017 was also one where there was substantial protests, but we didn't see uh, communal violence. And then 2022 has been almost uh, completely peaceful. I have to add a caveat that even while Kenyans are pushing their politicians uh, towards issue-based politics, the behavior of the elite has not really improved. It has still remained problematic. And very, very unfortunately, we see in the last few days that an electoral commission official was found murdered and tortured. And that is really a terrible and horrific blot on this election. That, I'm afraid, can only be done by some elements within the country that feel they have impunity. And so elite behavior is lagging institutional reform. Thanks, Marithi. Yeah, I think we'll get back to many of those themes. First of all, you know, we've made it this far in the podcast without actually talking much about the victor, William Ruto. Um, he's not new to the Kenyan scene. He's quite a polarizing figure. J just tell us about him. So William Ruto is an insider. He has been in and around power and politics for more than 30 years. He emerged in the early 90s as a young, um, a fairly charismatic uh, leader of the then ruling party, Kanu Youth Wing. Um, he has forged a career built on his evident talents as a speaker, as a mobilizer, 
But he got his big break when the former president, Daniel Moy, retired. He found a gap um, where he could fill the, the, the slot within that, that, you know, devastated ruling party, Kanu, that lost power in 2002. And he very quickly emerged as its potential new leader. He is polarizing without question. In 2007, he was one uh, of the main allies of Raila Odinga's campaign, uh, but he was in, subsequently indicted by the International Criminal Court um, for alleged participation in the violence that followed that election. He also has been accused of being less than accountable in, in his management of public funds in the past. Of course, his supporters, and we have to add, it's, it's, he's never been found culpable in court. But what he has shown over the last couple of months is his remarkable political talent. He understood that following the, uh, the alliance that Kenyatta forged with his longtime rival Odinga in 2018, that he could not win an election based on ethnic mobilization. He therefore crafted a platform based on economic inequality and anxiety. His primary message was that he had been isolated by Uhuru Kenyatta and Raila Odinga, the sons of the first president and the, uh, the first vice president of the country, respectively, because he, Ruto, was the son of a poor man, a young man that grew up in poverty and was forced to sell chicken by the roadside to make his way. It's a message that arguably has pushed him over the line. He's one of the first people to win the presidency on his very first attempt, which is a remarkable uh, achievement. That message uh, worked in two ways. One, it helped to build a, a national tent, and therefore he was able to acquire a lot of support in various pockets of the country, where in the past Odinga could expect almost total support. Uh, but secondly, and perhaps most strikingly, it really struck a chord among the Kikuyu, the biggest ethnic group in the country that didn't field a candidate this time. And remarkably, he ousted Kenyatta as the leader of the Kikuyu in essence. He managed to post very strong support in the Mount Kenya region, which is the most populous, as I said, and therefore um, managed to just get over 50% of the vote if the tallies are upheld by the courts. So we have to note that uh, because he positioned himself as a self-styled hustler against so-called dynasties, and because he was able to strike a nerve by identifying himself as an everyman that understands the concerns of the man on the street, he was able to pull off a feat that very few people um, gave him their uh, capacity to do. So very talented, very polarizing, and a total, totally intriguing figure. For me, the question is, will he end up being corrupt and authoritarian in power, or maybe have the challenges of him being isolated by Kenyatta, where he was strongly protected by institutions such as the judiciary. Maybe will that impel him to, to try and use his better qualities, his discipline, his hardworking, he keeps time, he's very uh, focused. Will that then maybe tilt him towards uh, a more reform-minded and, and better steward of Kenyan affairs. So it's, it's, it's a mystery, and we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, because obviously for a long time, um, there's been a lot of fears that if Rito did win, he could be a leader who, who takes Kenya on an authoritarian path. I mean, it's one of the fascinating things about this uh, elections. It was a huge triumph for democracy. Then you have a number of pro-democracy people worrying about the, the state of democracy based off of their fear of, of what a Ruto presidency might mean. Do you, do you think those fears are justified? It's a fair question, but I would make uh, three quick points. One, 
is that the fact that the state, with all its might, and with Kenyatta and Odinga on one side, with elements of the state openly boasting that they were going to fix this election, that the deep state would win it for Odinga, that the so-called system could not be defeated. The fact that Ruto appears to have won, at least according to the declared results, um, tells you that Kenya is a complex society. It is one where you don't have one center of power. It is one where even in the worst days of authoritarian rule under Moy and Kenyatta, you still had an, a vibrant private sector, a strong uh, media, and a very strong civil society. I'm not too worried about a possible descent into authoritarianism. Even a talented politician like Ruto, I don't think we'll be able to pull off that feat. Secondly, this was an election where Ruto actually, if he, I think if he had come to power with Kenyatta's endorsement, he would not have been able to operate in an open, um, he would not have respected the fact that Kenya is an open society. But as I said, because he was isolated by Kenyatta, because he and his allies appear to have suffered quite an intense campaign of intimidation, of bullying by the security services, uh, bullying by the investigative agencies, and because the judiciary and civil society, elements of civil society came to his aid, I hope that will shape him um, in the direction of being more progressive. But third, a lot of people have worried, might he be able to, uh, for example, push back Kenya's uh, tradition of, of two-term presidencies? I would say that nobody would, and maybe this is too brave a declaration, you should never um, be too predictive when you, it comes to Kenyan politics. But I, do, I think that that two-term tradition is so deeply entrenched in Kenya at the moment, that it will be very difficult for anyone to reverse it. I have to caveat that by saying that those that know Ruto uh, consider him overconfident, almost sometimes hubristic. Um, the fact that he has won against all the odds, against you know a media, a hostile media environment, against a government that was boasting that it could stop him one way or the other, and against the the heavyweight the political heavyweights from the Moi Odinga and Kenyatta families I think that might maybe give him a degree of overconfidence it, it then might lead him to be quite anti-reform I have to add that he's inheriting a very difficult economy and and there will be immense expectations so he will have to be a coalition builder because it will be a tough environment in which to be president. Those are all fascinating reflections. Um, it'll be very interesting to see what a Ruto presidency looks like, even if we're sort of hanging on to the, the guardrails as it comes. I think we need to really go back and, and, and talk about this uh, blowout in Mount Kenya. In the run-up to the election, you and others you know, pointed out that the Kikuyu, the Mount Kenya region, was sort of the swing vote in this election, and it, it wasn't even close, the, the results showed Ruto just running away with the vote there and, and basically pummeling Raila uh, in the final count. That just seems worth reflecting on given, you know, this is President Kenyatta's home region um, and given the degree to which Kenyan politics in the past and still to some degree and even a large degree today usually ends up just being drawn on coalitions of, of ethnic groups and the ethnic groups vote kind of very predictably based off of where their, you know, sort of top elites uh, sit in these coalitions. So, so so, the fact that Ruto managed to pull this off, despite Kenyatta, an incumbent president, backing his opponent, w what does this tell us? And does it tell us about any sort of trend? Um, do you think this is a one-off? Or, or can we say that Kenya's trending sort of in, in a new direction with its politics? 
So this is a tough one. And of course, it's one of the most remarkable aspects of this campaign. I don't want to claim to have predicted uh, the outcome. I remember a journalist asking me, but just off the record, who, who is really going to win? And I said, I don't know, but it's going to be very tight. And the reason that I didn't really trust the opinion polls that placed Odinga consistently ahead was precisely for this reason. Ruto seemed consistently and remarkably strong in, in Mount Kenya. I can see why people were surprised by that. Um, you had a situation where you have a Kikuyu incumbent and not, not just any other Kikuyu, but a Kenyatta. And, and so Ruto's achievement in, in, in pulling this fit off maybe needs to be seen in two ways. One is that the Kikuyu community has historically never really had a central leader. It has had leaders that sometimes it pushes to one side, but it's one where um, leadership has historically been very decentralized. Second, even before independence, the Kikuyu community were one, was one where you had the politics of inequality and the politics of who was collaborating with the colonial authorities and who was fighting for independence. I think Ruto very perceptibly, uh, and, and that's why we have to be careful not to, not to immediately say this is post-ethnic politics, uh, because he understood that to survive politically and with Kenyatta having pushed him to one side, he still needed to maintain the core of the Jubilee Alliance, and that was a Kalenjin, Kikuyu Alliance, the Kalenjin of course being Ruto's own community. And so he cottoned on to the economic despair in central province at a time when the economy is not doing great, a lot of debt pressure, uh, the global shocks like COVID and Ukraine. And he cottoned on to that anxiety. He went directly to the people while where, you know, the Odinga camp appeared to have relied much more on Kenyatta being able to bring the community along with him. And, and so he went over the heads of, of Kenyatta and company and appealed directly to the people. I think it was an intense uh, four years of campaigning at the grassroots level, working very hard, that convinced the ordinary Kikuyu that they could place their trust in, in Ruto and remarkably, and for the first time in Kenya, abandon uh, the person who was commonly regarded as their ethnic leader. It's really a remarkable achievement. I would say that we may not be in post-ethnic politics yet, uh, but, but Kenya is making progress. Uh, the Kikuyu had never voted for a candidate from outside their community before since multi-party elections were introduced, and Ruto is the first to achieve that feat. But this is a double-edged sword, I would say, and maybe that's too strong a word, but it's, it, this, we have to look at this both ways. One is that while the election was, was peaceful and, and fairly uh, transparent, it would seem, it's 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 problematic for Kenya that every single president since independence has essentially come from two communities, from the Kalenjin and from the Kikuyu, and they seem to be in a pattern where they're just exchanging um, the leadership. I wonder what that means for long-run stability and for all other Kenyans feeling that they belong, and especially for his opponent, Odinga. Um, he comes from the Luo community, which made such a huge contribution to the fight for independence, which... Uh, whose elites uh, were very instrumental in getting Kenyatta's father, uh, Akikuyu, into power, and who then felt a very stinging sense of betrayal, not just at independence, but also in 2002, when again Odinga Aluo supported Akikuyu uh, to ascend to the presidency. I hope to be so crude, I don't want to be essentialist, uh, but if it appears that consistently leaders from Western Kenya are 
are pushed out of power, the presidency is eternally rotated among the Kikuyu and Kalenjin, then that's problematic for the future. And just briefly, I hope this pattern might be broken by devolution and by new leaders emerging at the local level that can run on their record rather than on their last names. That's potentially uh, the optimistic view. But yes, we have to look at the problems as well. Are there indications besides the, the Mount Kenya vote that this was a much less ethnic politics based election? Another way of reading the Mount Kenyan vote is that because it didn't really split but went one way is is less that it was post-ethnic, but maybe just the Kikuyu rejected Kenyatta and swung in mass somewhere else. But I'm just wondering, is there, in the election results, are there other trends to, to, to look at that, that are showing this kind of move away from, from ethnic politics? Yes, so two points. I would say that the relatively low voter registration and ultimately the relatively low by Kenyan standards, I know high by global standards of roughly 65% of the vote, uh, of the voters turning out. I think that was important to the extent that it showed that elections are not viewed as life and death matters or matters of communal survival. And, and so counterintuitively, you know, a lot of observers asked me, what, what a disaster that the youth don't seem to be voting. And I told them they are voting by not voting because they don't see elections as existential and they don't see, they see the, the candidates as almost, you know, presenting a, a contrast without a difference. And so that was really important. The fact that the stakes appeared low, that a lot of people were indifferent, I think that was positive. I think secondly, certainly, Ruto polled much, much better than the Jubilee Party did in 2017 when it was seen as much more of an ethnic census. For example, in a very populous county in Western Kenya called Bungoma, Ruto won. And, and that was a striking uh, appending of normal expectations where Odinga has historically been very strong there. He polled, he didn't win at the coast, uh, but his message of inequality and of um, of a promise for better economic fortunes appears to have cut through in, in, in the coast, which again was a very solid Odinga stronghold. So even if he didn't really win in, in some of those areas, he was able to attract a much more diverse uh, following in, in various parts of the country. And then for Odinga as well, while he did not win in, in the Mount Kenya region where the Kikuyu are the most populous, he performed much better than in the past. And, and so, you know, in normal times, you'd have got single-digit support, but this time he was able to poll um, in the 20 to 25% in various counties. So there was a bit of a shift, but you are right to point out that it was it, it still remains, we, we still have to be cautious about this. And the less charitable perspective on the Kikuyu situation was that it was partly a strong rejection of, of Odinga and Kenyatta. Okay, so to move on to some of the other major figures here um, and maybe reflect on, on them, you know, many people, of course, think this has to be Raila Odinga's final campaign for presidency. He, of course, is a former prime minister, so it's not that he's never held higher office, but, you know, it seems like what he's remembered for most is basically not winning the presidency despite many attempts. Can you just reflect on his very long um, and complicated legacy that, that he's likely to hold? So Odinga is one of the titans of Kenyan politics. He really has to be credited with uh, entrenching the, the, the reform journey that Kenya has enjoyed. And so I would take a slightly more charitable view than, than you just have framed, Alan, because we have to recall that 
Odinga went to detention for nearly eight years. In the 80s, he paid a very great price to help Kenya uh, move out of the fairly authoritarian uh, drift in which it was in, in the 80s and 90s. He, he not only did that, but also uh, supported the, the candidacy of Mwai Kibaki, who then ousted the long-ruling party Kanu. Uh, but also, Odinga played a really critical role following the post-election violence in 2007 by supporting the 2010 constitution. So the irony of ironies is that this election was probably quite transparent. The judiciary is quite strong because of Odinga's sacrifices and because of his investment. But then, of course, you're right to point out that he leaves a complicated legacy if this turns out to be his last run and if the Supreme Court upholds Ruto's victory. Partly because I remember a former chief justice pointing out to me that Odinga is a bit of a contradiction because he runs with the hares and hunts with the hounds. And, and so he's the sort of guy that um, has been very prominent in the reform uh, business, but at the same time, he has associated himself with fairly conservative and, and reactionary forces. Um, in Kenya's history, he worked with Moi. He also uh, now has worked with Uhuru Kenyatta. And I would argue that this late asso latter association with Kenyatta, which brought him the burden of incumbency, but added almost nothing in terms of electoral support, uh, has turned out to be, unfortunately, a burden upon him. It, it has blocked, essentially, his path to power at a time when many people thought this was his best chance uh, to win the presidency since he was arguably cheated in 2007. And, and so it's absolutely a complicated legacy, but I would say that I, we should remember him most for his contribution to the reform journey. And, and of course, we should also discuss uh, President Kenyatta, who, who wasn't running but finished his two terms as president. Kenyatta did run in 2002 as the successor to, to Moy and lost that election. This election also feels like a bit of a rebuke. So he's someone who's both won elections and lost elections, although if he does accept this defeat, he would also be an African leader who, who shows that he's willing to you know, hand over power, not to his appointed successor. I'm just wondering, reflecting on both his time in power, but also perhaps him as a politician. So Kenyatta is, is again also a complicated character. He, uh, as you said, lost uh, comprehensively in his first attempt to get into office. He then won in 2013 and retained office. I, I think Sam will give him credit for reaching across the aisle, shaking hands with Odinga, showing that a Luo leader could, could work with a Kikuyu leader. And that was really an important um, uh, gesture of reconciliation. But this outcome of the election will... Will, will ultimately be judged as a stinging rebuke of him. Um, it's a time of very deep economic pain within Kenya. He is not a very popular incumbent. He ultimately put everything on the line to support Odinga. Uh, but the fact Odinga seems to have lost and lost with his own uh, Mount Kenya base rejecting his choice very resoundingly will be seen as a stinging rebuke. Secondly, Kenyatta doesn't seem to have been very gracious in accepting the results. He, he, the state appears, elements of the state appear to be resisting it. We hear that it took the security services being very professional and demanding that the tallying should conclude for everything to go smoothly. So um, I would say that domestically he might be seen as 
a president that um, was successful in, in capturing power, but with a, a relatively poor domestic record given the very successful economy he inherited, the very thriving economy he inherited from his predecessor. Um, and the, the succession doesn't seem to have gone very well. I have to say, though, that on the foreign policy uh, side, he will be regarded as a success. He has positioned Kenya as a strong leader in the region. He played a constructive role in trying to steer the parties in the Ethiopian uh, civil war to dialogue. He has seemed to be very engaged in trying to bring the parties together in um, the Eastern DRC's uh, long-running and tragic conflict. He has done some things. He has positioned Kenya very well as, as a leader of the region, as the country that people turn to when they want to engage with the region. Uh, so it will be a mix. Uh, domestic, uh, domestically, will be seen as one whose whose record is not particularly sterling, uh, but um, internationally, a bit of a success. Okay, we've done a lot of backwards looking, uh, <laughs> sideways looking. Uh, let's look forward a little bit more. Um, you've talked about you know the very dire state of Kenya's economy that uh, Ruto is is inheriting if his victory is confirmed by the courts. What will be his major domestic priorities and, and really domestic crises that he'll face? I think the most important thing that Ruto will need to do is lower expectations. Arguably, he was the candidate that rode on a wave of expectations Well, Odinga really positioned himself as a conciliator and didn't promise too much. I think the reality is that Kenya has very limited fiscal space for an ambitious economic program of infrastructure expansion. I should add, for example, that Kenyatta had a very positive success uh, in terms of infrastructure expansion. But the country has very low fiscal space. It is a, a, a situation where... Um, Almost half of revenue is going towards debt servicing. We are in a very difficult global economic environment. The cost of living will continue to go up. He will immediately have to grapple with the fact that Kenyatta instituted subsidies over the last couple of months on fuel and on food, which are arguably not sustainable and need to be uh, removed. But then how do you remove those when you've presented yourself as a champion of the poor and as one that will make a huge difference in their lives? So he will face considerable about domestic challenges. I think he needs to lower expectations. I think he needs to reduce um, waste, reduce corruption in government, and reorder uh, expenses and, and priorities. I think he needs to be much more of a retail politician. People will hold him to his word. And therefore, uh, his economic team, led by uh, the veteran economic um, expert David Ndee, has, has talked about moving from a big-ticket infrastructure um, economic model to one, for example, targeted at, at the average livestock herder, at the average farmer, and, and that sort of approach. So if, if he can show that even in this difficult environment, at least he's reordering the, the economy towards a more bottom-up approach as he's promised, then that will give him time. Uh, that might buy him time. But he faces forbidding obstacles. And of course, this is a podcast where we focus on the region, and a lot of our listeners will, I think, be very keen to sort of get a sense of what this result might mean for Kenya uh, within the region. It sounds like Ruta will be quite focused uh, domestically. Um, it also sounds like this will complicate, for instance, the role that Kenyatta looked like he was trying to play and perhaps acting as a mediator in the uh, Ethiopian civil war. So, so, so what do you think this means for Kenya's foreign policy, especially you know, in the immediate region? I think most importantly, and without overstating it, I think 
the principal lesson from this election is that peaceful politics is possible and you can have competitive elections without triggering a civil war. So I would argue that the most important element from this election is demonstrative. And, you know, some, some have argued that a lot of authoritarians in the region were hoping for an election that's less than successful, but now we see on social media people in various countries saying, why can't we have some of what the Kenyans have? And, and so that will be really important. But I would really hope that Ruto will also seek to be a, a president that's adept at foreign policy, that tries to learn very quickly. He's, he's very um, effective as a domestic politician. He needs to learn very quickly in terms of engagement with the region. And I, two things in particular, I hope he continues Kenya's engagement in trying to unknot the very uh, important crisis in the region in Ethiopia and also continues to engage in, in the DRC, but arguably perhaps in a more careful fashion uh, than, than rushing into sending troops. I would uh, finally uh, hope that he continues to try and ease relations uh, with Somalia, which were quite bad over the last couple of years. Those seem to have been improving, uh, but Kenya has historically been a force for good in the region. I think Really, Kenya needs to contribute at a time of strife, at stalemated transition in South Sudan, of trouble in Sudan, and of course of, of a troubled picture almost everywhere else. So um, I would hope that despite his domestic preoccupation, he will invest in engaging with the region, in learning quickly about the region, in being um, an actor that tries to project an effort at peace building. Uh, and, you know, who knows, maybe because he has so many domestic problems, he might welcome the destruction. Yeah, it's also remarkable, you know, that we have had a sort of peaceful transfer of power in Somalia earlier this year, and now this one in Kenya of very different sorts. Well, we haven't seen how this Kenya one will play out, but but hopefully where the elite also accept, you know, a transfer of power. As, as we close here, I just want you to think even further ahead and reflect on the future of Kenya's democracy. Um, in some ways, Kenya is, uh, looks like a, you know, a very exemplary a model amid a lot of backsliding. Of course, the, the turnout was low, as you said, so it also shows a lot of discontent within Kenya itself. We've talked about this, and you know, there's a recent New York Times op-ed piece also sort of suggesting that Kenyan elites were becoming a bit disgruntled with, with the democratic model as, as well. Um, and Ruto, of course, in order to get past the ethnic card, played a very populist, very class-based, very anti-elitist, uh, which was ironic in some ways, but a very anti-elitist campaign. Are you worried at all about the future of Kenyan democracy, not at the people and popular support level, but from the elites themselves? In terms of Kenyan democracy, we are seeing incremental progress. And as you know, progress in, in, in democracies can be slow and frustrating. And we tend to see that actually when you do the polling soon after messy elections in Kenya, you find even much of the public saying that, or would that we were not a democracy. I, I, I am less worried now than I was at any point over the last few years, including over the last few days, partly because when you establish a tradition of holding relatively peaceful elections, that reduces the chances that you will have a blow up. And so I think Kenya is on a trajectory towards institutional consolidation, uh, towards an, ex an acceptance of democracy as banal. I was just telling you before we came on the show that uh, uh, when I was doing my walks over the last few days, you saw quite a few fruit stalls and, and, and newspaper vendors uh, closing their businesses. But 
gradually, you know, over the last few days, I've seen them reopening, partly because democracy and elections is becoming more banal. And so even where I understand the impatience of elites and, and their envy of, of more authoritarian and effective uh, governments, particularly in the Far East, I would say that there's no choice but democracy in Kenya. There's no choice but democracy for handling diverse uh, societies. It's much more sustainable than authoritarianism. I think it will, in the long run, uh, benefit the country, even if it can be frustrating in the short run. Mm. Finally, Marithi, maybe to broaden the scope a bit more globally, there's a lot of talk, you know, especially from Washington at the moment, uh, promoting democracy, really trying to support democracy. The Kenyan elections feel quite homegrown. It feels like very much a, a Kenyan success. I'm wondering if you have any reflections on what helps and what doesn't help from outsiders. I think we're often quite skeptical of a lot of, you know, the sort of lecturing tone that comes from Washington. It's not received well on the continent. But is is there anything that can be helpful from outsiders who want to encourage more democracy? I'm just wondering if you have any sort of final thoughts on that, given the Kenyan example. It's a good point, Alan. I would say that um, the Kenyan democratic success is basically very much homegrown. There were a lot of people that made sacrifices, especially in the 90s and the late 80s. A lot of people went to, to jail. A lot of brave journalists and civil society actors, as well as politicians like Odinga, as I mentioned. And so it's primarily homegrown, but it also took a lot of um, external support. In difficult times in the early 90s, the ambassador to Kenya, Smith Henston, was one of the most famous figures in the country because at that period, it was very difficult to challenge Moi uh, domestically. And so external support, very loud and very aggressive, was very, very productive. Of course, we are in a very different world today. It is a world where the West is not a particular democratic model. I would say that quiet support at this stage is very useful. And I know that various international actors, the UN, the AU, various observers, and uh, 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 the US, the UK, and the EU, even in this Kenyan election, have been instrumental and very constructive in quietly engaging with the elites to urge them to be, uh, to be responsible and not to push the country over the edge. Um, there have been some ropey moments and you have to give credit to the diplomats that have engaged in a quiet fashion, uh, particularly with the principal actors, urging them to maintain all their conflicts within the institutional framework. So I think it's still a, a, a success in terms of the engagement between external actors and domestic actors, the quiet pressure uh, and engagement was useful and that should continue. Thanks, Marithi. Thanks for doing this, Alan. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening. The Horn is a production of the International Crisis Group. You can read our reports on crisisgroup.org. Follow Marithi on Twitter at MutigaM. That's M-U-T-I-G-A-M. Once again, I'm Alan Boswell. The Horn is produced by Mae Francis and Ida Holly Nambi. 